For the past four years, Lucas Cooper has been the lead pastor of a thriving multi-ethnic church in the heart of Toronto, Canada. Founded in 1941, Bayview Glen Church has a rich history of biblical teaching and outreach, and the congregation includes people from a hundred different nationalities. No stranger to the Phoenix heat, Lucas formerly served on staff at SBC as pastor of our venue community. Please welcome home, Pastor Lucas Cooper. Oh man, it's awesome to see you. I served on staff here for eight years. And as I was looking at faces this morning and greeting people and hugs and handshakes and all that stuff, I just thought about all the times I've officiated weddings for people in the room or uh, stood at gravesides and uh, said goodbye to loved ones or celebrated the birth of babies or uh, walked through miscarriages or whatever. And if I could tell you all of the stories of every face in this place that is so dear to me, uh, we would be here for the next couple of hours. Uh, we're going to be here for the next three anyway because my sermon is long, but it, that would have taken me two hours. Um, so I don't know if you ever feel this way in some, maybe some of your contexts and, and different places that you go in your life, but man, this feels like coming home to me. It so feels like home, so thank you for being so sweet to me. Yeah. Listen, I ran out of time last night, and so we're going to just zip through this thing this morning. We've got a lot to cover, and I'm so excited to share with you uh, what God has laid on my heart and even been teaching me over the last couple years uh, in Toronto. So let's pray together, and we'll get into the Word. God, thank you for the opportunity to share uh, this morning about who you are and what you've done. God, I pray that you would ease us together this morning, that we would release anxiety and we would release maybe fear. We would release even skepticism and put it on hold just for a minute. Submit ourselves to your spirit that's alive in this place. Would you bring comfort, healing, conviction? God, that unique, special, supernatural, divine something that only you can give us. And I use that word something, God, just for lack of a better term. God, we know when you're here. We know when you move. Your sheep hear your voice. And so we want to hear from you today. We invite you to speak to us. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. amen. Uh, well, I grew up in a part of the country where church is really a cultural thing. I grew up in West Texas in eastern New Mexico area in a place called the Permian Basin. It's kind of the Bible belt of, of, the, uh, of the United States. And, and the joke in West Texas is that we have more church members than we do people. And that's true. Uh, we have more church members than we do people because everybody goes to church. Even the animals go to church and they can be a member there. I mean, it is crazy because it's just a cultural thing. So I grew up here the gospel or the good news, at least what I thought was the gospel or the good news each and every Sunday at First Baptist Church in Hobbs, New Mexico. And unfortunately, the gospel that I heard or the good news that was told to me was not complete. It wasn't inaccurate. It wasn't wrong. It just wasn't complete. So I want to share with you kind of what the gospel meant to me, the good news about Jesus growing up. It meant that Jesus came to live, die, and rise again so that you could go to heaven one day. Your disembodied 
consciousness, your soul, your spirit would leave your body and your body would be put in the ground and you would go spend eternity with him one day in a place called heaven. And then our notions of heaven, especially kind of our collective notions as a society of heaven, were really askew from what the Bible teaches about the end of all things and what God is going to do when he comes back for a second time in his son Jesus. And here are our, our notions of heaven, and, and the best ways uh, to, to find our notions of heaven is to just do a Google image search. So that's what I did. Here, here, here's a couple of notions that we have of heaven. If you were to Google the word heaven, and, and then click the images thing, this or some version of this image is what you would get. This is the predominant notion of heaven uh, among society today. Clouds, staircase, some kind of staircase, and some kind of someone who is wearing a very nicely tailored suit, by the way, is walking up into what you assume is like an eternity in heaven with God. And once he gets there, what we think it's gonna look like is something like this. There are gonna be uh, angels with wings and they are very, very thin, and there's like a there's a pipe organ there in heaven, which is very weird. Uh, or we think heaven might look a little bit something like this, like a garden with a lake. And this is like this is it's a double rainbow. What does it mean? You know, I mean, this is like a weird. And I've got a friend who who would say that um, he hates being in, on, or around water, except in a tub. So this is his own personal hell. Um, <laughs> I found, I found an image of heaven that I wanna share with you this morning. It really has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but I think it's hilarious. Uh, this is an image of heaven. If you Googled heaven, somebody pictures heaven as this. And so here's the staircase, here's the clouds, okay? And apparently when you go to heaven, you're gonna meet Michael Jackson, Prince, the crocodile hunter, Kimbo Slice, Harambe, Patrick Swayze, Muhammad Ali, Tupac, I'm not sure who this guy is, and the eighth inch in, uh, input jack for iPhone headphones, you know what I mean? Uh, because this went to meet its final resting place uh, this last year. They've completely eliminated that. This is the weirdest image of heaven I've ever seen in my life. This is decidedly not biblical, just so you know. But the notion that we even sing about sometimes, a song that I really love and I sang a lot growing up, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. We see heaven as some kind of alternative reality that God has created so that when he deletes this reality and deletes this earth and deletes all that, our disembodied consciousness can go be with God in that place called heaven. But again, that's a decidedly unbiblical notion because Paul shares with us in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about when we die and he says, uh, when these bodies of ours are folded up like tense, if you would throw that slide up there for me. There you go. For instance, we know that when these bodies of ours are taken down like tents and folded away. So here's the metaphor that Paul is using for our life in the here and now. He's saying it's like camping, which is stupid, by the way. You have a perfectly good house. Don't go out in the middle of nowhere to sleep on a rock. That's just dumb. Okay. So he says, when you're done doing that, you're going to fold up that temporary dwelling place, and then it will be replaced by a resurrection body. So what's Paul telling us here? He's saying that when this life comes to an end and Jesus makes all things new in his final consummated kingdom, you will actually get a new body. Do we all see it there? You'll get a resurrection body. So this notion that our disembodied consciousness, our soul and our, or our spirit or something like that will go to be in a place called heaven with Jesus one day is kind of true, but it's not totally true. So here's what I want to do this morning. I just want to share with you the good news about Jesus. 
I want to share with you the good news. I want to share with you, go back one slide if you would. I want to share with you the good news. I want to share with you the gospel. I want to share with you what the Bible says about God's grand redemptive plan and what he's up to in our lives in the here and now. And the good news is really represented by four very simple statements. So if you're a note taker, I would love if you jot these four statements down because these are the four statements that we're going to unpack together in our time remaining. And our four statements are simply this. Uh, God made a perfect kingdom. We broke it with our sin, with our rejection of God, with, with our rebellion. We, we broke it. We fractured it. He will, he shall, he purposes to redeem it and restore it, and he began with Jesus. God made a perfect kingdom. Uh, Go back one slide if you would. There you go. We broke it. He will redeem it, and he began with Jesus. So we're going to unpack these statements one by one this morning so that we understand what the Bible says. And if you stick with me this morning, rest assured, our notion of God's kingdom and his activity and his purposes for the end of all things will radically shift this morning. So let's talk about God's perfect kingdom. Genesis chapter 1 is an account of God's creative work in the world. It says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. And God began to create. He began to create light and dark and sun and moon and stars and water and fish and ducks and mosquitoes, which is the worst thing ever. Um, I feel like... I feel like God kind of, kind of got to the mosquito. He's like, oh, it's fine like it is. Just leave it. That's, but that's not true. Uh, but he created all these things, and, and, and God made his perfect kingdom. And when we read Genesis chapter 1, sometimes we read Genesis chapter 1 as if it's a scientific textbook. It's not a scientific textbook. This is a spiritual text that we're reading. And so we start looking for things like, well, how long did it take God to create? And was it 24 hours, or was it a long time, was it a short time, and how old is the earth? Genesis 1 will tell us some of those things, but if we get so mired in those details, we miss the purpose of Genesis 1. And the purpose of Genesis 1, the purpose of that book, is to tell us what God did when he created the heavens and the earth and when he created humankind. And what he wants us to know is it was perfect. And his perfect kingdom was marked by things like Peace, not violence. The biblical word here is shalom. That's the Hebrew word, and it literally means harmony. It's like you hear a band like this that rocked this morning, by the way. Those guys are fantastic. And if one of those guys kind of went off in its own, their own direction, playing in the wrong key, playing in the wrong tempo, you would go, oh, that is weird. That's not what I want. But when everybody's playing together in harmony and everyone's in sync, it's awesome. It sounds great. See, that's the word shalom. That's the peace and not violence and discord that marked God's perfect kingdom when he designed the world just as he wanted it. It was marked by order and not chaos. There was not chaos in God's perfect kingdom. There was a place for everything and everything was in its place. God's perfect kingdom was whole and not fractured, but not purely from a cosmological perspective. God's kingdom was whole and not fractured from an identity perspective. That is to say that our human identity, when he created first man and first woman, you might have heard them referred to as Adam and Eve, their identity as human beings was interconnected and whole. That is to say their spiritual life, their physical life, their 
sexual life, their relational life, their parenting life, all of it was whole and there was no conflict within them in terms of their identity. God's perfect kingdom was marked by duty, responsibility, not blame. Remember in Genesis chapter one, if you've read the account, one of the first thing that God does is gives man a job. He says, name all the animals. I always wonder how long that took. It's like, you know, you start with the big ones, you're like deer, bear, It's like you get to the end and you're like platypus. You just got to make up words, you know, because it's like you've been doing this a long time. He gave them another job too, to work the ground and till it and to cultivate the garden. It was marked by duty, responsibility. It was marked by light and not darkness. God's perfect kingdom was marked by joy and not fear. It was marked, joy and not fear, if you would. It was marked by truth and not lies. And it was marked by life and not death. God's perfect kingdom did not have death or sickness or dying as a part of it. Now, for those of you who are looking up at those words right now, peace, order, wholeness, responsibility, life, truth, joy, and light, how many of you would say that every aspect of your life, your job, your marriage, your relationships, your internal personal life are marked by all those things all the time? Raise your hand. Okay, good, perfect. The reason why is because we now live in a fractured kingdom that's been turned upside down because of our rebellion towards the good and perfect king. See, when God was king, we had light, we had goodness, we had joy, we had all of those things, but now we live in a world where this whole thing has been turned upside down. This is just something that kind of popped in my head, but I want to share it with you. I hope that understanding uh, God's perfect kingdom design and the way that it's been turned on its head changes the way you read the Old Testament. So instead of reading the Old Testament and going, what are the things that God wants me to do and what are the things he doesn't want me to do? Maybe we read the Old Testament and go, oh my gosh, this is a historical account of what happens when we reject the good and perfect king. And we're still living in this fractured kingdom now. We're still living in a world of violence and not peace. The nation of Syria used chemical weapons on its own people in April. We live in a world marked by chaos and not order, whether it's government structures or corporate structures. Our world is marked by chaos. We live in a world that's fractured and not whole. Remember, we talked about fractured human identity especially when it comes to sexual identity. We look and see people all of the time who have have a fractured sexual identity and they're not really sure what gender they are or what gender they identify with and they feel fractured and broken internally. I'm not making a moral statement about that. I'm not saying anything morally about that. What I'm saying is it's evidence that we live in a broken and fractured world. We live in a world that's marked by blame and not duty. People don't take responsibility for their stuff. Do you guys follow what went on with United Airlines this year? You remember when they kicked the guy off the plane? The doctor, they kicked him off the plane. They like broke his nose in the process. And then after the fact, they interviewed the CEO of United Airlines. It was great. They asked the CEO, what exactly happened here? And he goes, well, unfortunately, sometimes uh, on oversold flights, I think that's how he talks in my mind. And <laughs> unfortunately, on, on oversold flights, we have to reaccommodate passengers. I'm like, Oh, okay. Okay, you reaccommodated his nose to another part of his face. 
And in every interview after that whole United Airlines debacle, everyone they talked to, the doctor that got kicked off the plane, the police that did it, the flight attendants, the pilots, the CEO, not one person took responsibility. Did you see it? Oh, it was the flight attendant's fault. It wasn't my fault. Oh, it was the police's fault. It wasn't my fault. Or oh, that was my seat. And the CEO goes, well, I'm sorry. We had to reaccommodate passengers. And it was his fault. And it was everybody else's fault. You know that has its roots in the fall, right? Then God went to man and says, what's up, man? What'd you do? Oh, it was that woman you gave me. <laughs> and when God went to the woman and said, what's up? What'd you do? Oh, it was, it was the snake. We had to reaccommodate something. See, that's, we live in a world of blame. People don't take responsibility. That's its roots in the fall and sin. We live in a world of darkness and not light. If you go home and do a Google search for those images of heaven when you get home, uh, you'll be able to search the Internet. And the Internet is vast and the Internet is big and there's a lot of information on there and you're not going to be able to read it all in one day. Do you know that there is something called the dark web that you cannot see? The dark web that you cannot search with Google and it's five to 6,000 times larger than the Internet you can see. You think that's all filled with good stuff? Yeah, because we live in a world of darkness and not light. We live in a world of fear and not joy. I read a headline last week that North Korea can't launch a missile yet, but it's still scary. There's fear everywhere. We live in a world of lies and not truth. Do I have to give you an example on this one, or do you watch the news? We live in a world of death and not life. Uh, we face death all the time. Some of you in this room may even be facing death right this second. You may be looking death in the face. We face death of spouses and children, unfortunately. We face death all the time. And not just a death physically, but death spiritually or the death of a dream or the death of a relationship or a death of a hope. See, none of that was part of God's perfect kingdom. See, that was us. That was our rebellion against the good and perfect king that earned us those consequences. And it's really easy to blame other people and to blame individuals and to blame society and say, oh yeah, everybody else is broken, but I'm not that broken. I want to prove it to you in two ways. The first way is I want to put a phrase up here that I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, and it will prove to you that you and I are broken. Ready? Here's the phrase. It's cash me outside. How about that? Do you know this phrase? How many people in this room do not know this phrase? Raise your hand. Good, you're a Christian. Uh, how many people in this room do know this phrase. Raise your hand. Yes, you're a pagan sinner in need of a savior. That's what that is. That's what that is. But I know this phrase, so I'm with you. So like, at least we have some camaraderie here. Okay, let me explain this phrase to you. Cash me outside, how about that? There is a show on the television called The Dr. Phil. Have you watched The Dr. Phil before? Okay, this is a very strange show because it's, it's this man who's got a really fantastic haircut and a great mustache. And basically he, I, I don't, I'm not sure that Dr. Phil knows what he's doing, uh, but that's beside the point. So what they do on this show, just like they do on every daytime talk show, is they bring on very dysfunctional people onto the show. And Phil talks to them, Dr. Phil, doctor, I think, um, with his Southern accent. And he says stuff like, well, I think your life is falling apart because you are a moron. You know, he says great stuff. I love it. People are like, well, I don't know, Dr. Phil, everything happens for a reason. It's like, yes, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason is you're an idiot and you make stupid choices. You know, like he's great. I love Dr. Phil. So they bring on this 13-year-old female child onto Dr. Phil with her mother. And this girl was like, like way off the deep end in rebellion. She's doing drugs, she's stealing cars, she's physically and verbally abusive towards her mom and she thinks she's awesome and she thinks she's all that. And she's a 13-year-old. I don't know about y'all, but a 13-year-old, that's, that's a child. That's a child, okay? They bring her on Dr. Phil. 
And she uh, starts to talk about all the things she's awesome at, and she's got street smarts, and she talks in like this street accent thing, whatever. I'm not even sure what that was. It was strange. And the audience, about 200 women, give or take, begin to giggle at her a little bit. And she gets upset that they're giggling at her, and she calls them a name that I won't repeat because it's Sunday morning. But the name that she calls all these women rhymes with those. Okay? Some of you know what that name is. The others of you just go right past it. Okay, So she calls them that, and they laugh at her, and she goes like this. After the show, why don't y'all cash me outside? How about that? And Dr. Phil goes, uh, excuse me, did you just say catch me outside? How about that? And she said, no, I said cash me outside. How about that? It's like, are you threatening my audience with physical violence? And she's like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm going to do that. Like, it was the wackiest thing I've ever seen. It was a very strange interaction. Okay, but here's what happens. The video of this thing goes viral on YouTube. And everybody's saying, cash me outside. How about that? Cash me outside. How about that? It's like millions of hits on YouTube. And listen, listen to me. This girl, this 13-year-old girl, threatened 200 women with physical violence. That's the fact. And that's right. And she's a celebrity. And she's a celebrity. Just keep talking to me because you know she's a celebrity now. She's trademarked the phrase. And she's parlayed a trademark threat of physical violence into a very lucrative career. Do you know what she gets paid to show up to a club opening or like your 50th wedding anniversary or bar mitzvah or whatever you want her at? She gets paid $40,000. That's U.S. too. That's like 90 grand Canadian. It's huge. That's a lot of money. She just bought herself for her 15th birthday a $250,000 Mercedes. She's on TV, she's in music. She's got this commercial where she promotes tea, tea. And literally, this is the commercial where she promotes tea. I'm not gonna ask you to drink this tea. I'm not gonna tell you to drink this tea. I'm a straight up demand that you drink this tea. You can cash me outside, how about that? And she's a celebrity now. And you know why she's a celebrity? Because our society looks online and they go click, 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 click. And they're looking on TMZ and they're clicking on everything on Facebook. And we've affirmed for this 13-year-old girl that it is okay to threaten people with physical violence. As a matter of fact, it's not just okay, it's awesome. And now you can be a celebrity and get paid lots of money. Friends, I hate to tell you, but that's not just her that's broken, that's us. That's us. And for some of you, you're going, you know what? That's not me. That's not me. Okay, okay. You didn't click on that. You didn't watch that video. That's fine. Would you be okay if I hooked these big screens up to your brain and your heart and let everybody see what goes on in there? Now we're busted. We're busted up. We live in a broken world. God's kingdom has been fractured. His design is no longer at play. The subjects have rebelled against the good and perfect king. And that's what we deal with. That's what we deal with. So if this was you, if this was your artistic masterpiece, let's say, or if this was your technology that you created and a company that you built, better yet, let's do it this way. If this was your children and one of your children just went off the rails and totally rebelled because that's God's creation. That's us. That's we, we are his perfect masterpiece. No wasted movement. Everything just so. Everything was perfect. 
And if one of your kids just totally went off the rails in university and they're 21 years old, and they just, what do you say to your spouse? Yeah, that's cool. We'll just get all new kids. No, no, that's absurd, right? And it's absurd for God, too, to just delete the thing and create something different. Let me prove it to you from Revelation chapter 21. A, a guy named John, he was about 16 years old when he started to follow Jesus, and he was the longest living disciple. All the other disciples had been killed for their faith. And when John was in a, in his later in life, God was kind enough to give him a vision of what was to come. He gave him either a dream or a vision of some kind so that he could see when all things, when God steps back on the stage and Jesus comes back for his second advent, his second coming, What's going to happen? And in Revelation chapter 21, John was nice enough to write this down for us. So watch what he says. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And watch this now. I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So no longer do we have the deleting of all things. We have heaven and earth colliding, don't we? Keep going. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Does this not sound like God's original perfect kingdom? And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Oh, there we are again, right? We're getting rid of the consequences of sin getting rid of the consequences of rebellion, no more death. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making, say these three words with me, all things new. Not all new things. Not all new things. All things new. The redemption and restoration of all things. God created it perfect, a world marked with peace and joy and life and hope and goodness where he walked with man like a friend would in the cool of the day. And he says, I'm going to restore it and make all things new. And what do you do with your kids when you tell them something and they're likely going to forget it, but it's really important. And you're like, I know you're going to forget this. So what should you do? Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You see, when we see God's grand redemptive plan in one kind of continuous arc across the scripture, knowing that he created his kingdom perfect and we broke it and one day he will restore and redeem it, it changes the way that we see the mission and message of Jesus. All of a sudden, Jesus didn't come to live, die, and resurrect so that you and I could spend our eternity as disembodied souls or spirits or consciousness in this place called heaven. Jesus came to live and die and rise again on the third day so that he could restore the kingdom of God, so that he could inaugurate the kingdom of God. And this is all over the scripture. I just want to show it to you. In Matthew chapter 4, 17 and 23, Matthew writes, from that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went through the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The second gospel, Mark says this, Mark in chapter one says, now after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Luke, even before Jesus shows up on the scene, tells us that God promised through an angel to Mary, Jesus' mother, that Jesus' kingdom will last forever. There will be no end. John chapter 3, where we get the, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus looks at Nicodemus in this very famous conversation and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 28, the way that book of Acts ends, the Acts of the Apostles, the history of the early church, it says that Paul stayed in the city that he was in, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. In other words, in Jesus, God began his kingdom restoration project. In Jesus, God began his kingdom restoration project. The four gospels, the four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mention the word salvation about 40 times, mentions the word sin about 60 times, mentions the word kingdom over 120 times. See, Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom. Jesus came to restore God's perfect kingdom marked by peace and light and joy. So for me... This begs a question. If God one day will make all things new and he will restore and redeem what we have fractured and brought it and will bring it back to his original intent and design and he did that in Jesus. He began that project in Jesus. Now what? Like now what? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and me? Right here, right now, today. Now watch this, because this to me is the most unbelievable invitation of the scripture. It really is. It it really is. This this one absolutely blows my mind. We've already been in 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul begins to talk about God reconciling us to himself in Christ. He begins to talk about the resurrection body that that we're going to receive when, uh, when these tents are folded away and we go to be with God for eternity and we'll receive that resurrection body. He talks about if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We just sang about that. The resurrected king is now resurrecting me. And look what he says. He says, all this is from God. All this is from God. All all of what I just said, the, 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 the new resurrection body that we have a hope for, reconciliation unto God, the new creation that we are in Christ, all of that is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, this makes sense that God would need to reconcile us to himself. Remember, because he was the rightful king. He was the rightful sovereign. He created it all. And we said, no, thanks. Not just no thanks. We rebelled. We ran our own way. And we're dealing with the consequences of that sin. So it makes sense that our relationship with God the Father would need to be reconciled because it was broke up. You know what I'm saying? It makes sense it would need to be reconciled. So God has reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. You see a broken world. You see it's busted up. God agrees. That's not how he designed it. So check it out. Get busy. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, again, instead of reading the New Testament going, what does God want me to do? What does God not want me to do? Now we can read the New Testament and go, God has given me the ministry of reconciliation. And by doing what God calls me to do, I am participating with him and reconciling all things to himself. Paul keeps going, watch. 
gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, this is why this is the most unbelievable invitation of the scripture. Because if I'm God, which I am not, and if you are God, which you are not, this is dumb, isn't it? You know, here's why. This ministry of reconciliation, this is God's grand kingdom restoration project. This is God restoring all things. This is God redeeming what was lost. This was God calling his creation back to himself, calling his children to himself, in Christ reconciling the world to himself and making all things new. This is what God has purposed to do and he entrusts it to me? That's stupid. But you know what? The resurrected king is resurrecting me and making me new every day. And he invites me to participate with him in making all things new. Now that is the good news. Not that your disembodied soul will spend eternity with God in heaven, but that God has reconciled you unto himself through Christ and now invites you to be part of his kingdom restoration project, to bring peace where there was violence, to bring joy where there was fear, to bring hope, to bring relationship where there was loneliness, to bring responsibility where there was only blame. This is what Jesus means when his disciples say, teach us how to pray. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. He invites us to participate with him. I wanna tell you one story about the ways in which God has picked up the broken pieces of my life and the fractured pieces of who I am. And this is not just from a global perspective or a cosmos perspective, but a personal perspective. I wanna tell you one story, and then I want to invite you to do the same and join with God in his grand intention and purpose in making all things new. Uh, This picture up here on the screen is my daughter. And uh, this one's my daughter, the little one. And this one's my wife. Um, That's Amy. For those of you who have not met her, they are in uh, Toronto where we live. This is our little girl, Kaya. We adopted her in August of 2014. Uh, Just a couple more pictures of Kaya here because she's cuter than your kids. Um, (laughs) Neutral statement of fact. Um, uh, Apparently, Amy sent me these pictures. I said, what pictures should I use at Scottsdale Bible? She sent me these pictures. I'm like, apparently this kid spends a lot of time on my shoulders because that's all we got pictures of her. Uh, We adopted Kaya in August of 2014. Uh, For those of you who don't know how an adoption process works, what happens is uh, a potential adoptive family like us goes to an agency and says, hey, we would like to adopt a child. And that agency says, great, uh, we have some uh, young women who are pregnant and they intend to place their children for adoption. We have them fill out what's called a birth mom profile. It's like a 15 page, very, very thorough questionnaire. And what they do is they take that profile and they send it to the potential adoptive family. So once we got cleared and all of our home studies done and checks done and all that stuff, we began to receive these birth mom profiles and it shows their, you know, their name and, and their background and their ethnicity and their favorite color and what kind of music they like. It shows everything. And we started reading these birth mom profiles and one after another, Amy and I prayed and said, you know, that's not, 
that's not what we're, that's not, no, not that one, not that one, not that one. 30 or 40 of them we said no to. I think our adoption agency at some point was like, do you guys actually want a kid here? Because you're saying no a lot. We said, we don't know. We just got, God is, God's leading us to just say, no, we're not sure. So they said, we've got four more profiles that we would like you to take a look at. And, and, and we're going to send them your way. And I said, great. So they sent us three. We looked at all three. We read all three. We prayed about all three. And we said no to three. And I called them back. I said, didn't you guys say four? And they said, yeah, we said four. I said, why don't you send me that other one? I got a feeling about that other one. Turns out that that was Kaya's birth mom. Uh, we read her profile, and immediately we knew that this was the match for us. And so we matched with her about two months into her pregnancy. We met birth dad. Uh, they had two children together, and Kaya was their third, and they placed their third. And we began a relationship with them that, surprisingly enough, was a relationship that was going to continue. Because the one thing in that birth mom profile that surprised us was that birth mom indicated that she wanted an open adoption. What that means is that subsequent to the birth of that child, the relationship between the adoptive family, that's us, and the birth family continues. In fact, it continued in a, in a pretty significant way. About six months after Kaya was born, we went down to visit her birth parents and her birth siblings. Uh, my wife and birth mom talk on a regular basis. They are friends, and, and they have developed an unbelievable relationship. So in December of 2015... We got a call one day from birth mom, and she said, hey, uh, I'm pregnant again. Actually, she just sent a picture of an ultrasound. That's all she did. She just sent an image. We are like, oh, that's an ultrasound. Is that you? Um, and she said, we would like you to adopt this baby too. That's joy when a birth mom says, I'd like you to adopt my child. We said, of course we would. And so we journeyed with them again over the next eight months. We paid expenses, and we you know, emotionally invested and our relationship grew. And we, I mean, we, we really got to be family with those guys. It was always funny to me because um, Kaya's birth mom was like, what do I call you guys? Like, are, are you friends? Are you family? Whatever. And what she settled on was calling Amy baby mama and me baby daddy. I was like, I always wanted to be a baby daddy. So we'll just deal with that. So we love those guys. Like, I joke about it, but, like, honestly, I could, call, I could call them right now. I could call them on my phone. They would answer right now. They may even be watching right now because they've watched me preach here before. They're fantastic human beings. But when it was time for that second baby to be born, we went down to Florida. We were in the hospital two days in advance, and we, you know, we were down there two days in advance, spent time at the pool with birth mom and birth dad and kids, and Kai was playing with her biological siblings, and it was fantastic. We prayed for her before she went in for her C-section. She went in and had her C-section, and she had a little bit of complications, so she was in the hospital for four days. And over those four days, Amy and I did every bottle, every diaper, every feeding. We spent nights in the hospital, and about an hour before she was discharged, she decided that she wanted to parent the baby. So I've never had a child uh, die. I've never had a late-term miscarriage, or, or my wife has never had a late-term miscarriage. Clearly, I have not, but uh, she's never had a late-term miscarriage. So I don't know what those things feel like. What, what I do know is that what experts or professionals would say is that the grief of a failed adoption is comparable to losing a baby. I, like, I don't, I don't know what those things feel like, so I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that professionals do. I do know that that day, it was a Saturday, I, I had to kiss that little baby that I thought was going to be mine and say goodbye. And I walked out of the hospital room, and I collapsed on the floor in grief. My wife had to pick me up, and we walked out of the hospital room. And I thought, God, there is no way 
Like, I get you're making all things new. I get you're restoring your kingdom. I get that you can pick up the pieces of other people's stuff, but not this. This is too much. This is too heavy. I shared about that last time I preached in December, and some of you heard that story. But check this out. Here's the ending of the story. (laughs) This is going to blow your mind. We go home, uh, back to Toronto in January, and God had been kind of stirring in our hearts that he could restore that relationship with them, that relationship that we valued and cherished so much. It was like a, a jewel to us. We loved it so much. And the relationship that was fractured by the grief of a failed adoption, we do not blame her for her choice. We are okay with her choice. We supported her choice, but it still hurt like the Dickens. You know what I'm saying? Like, and we didn't think God could, could heal that. We didn't think he could make all things new. We didn't think he could use us in a ministry of reconciliation. God, there is no way, but God begins to stir. You know what I mean? God begins to do little stuff. And you're like, are you kidding me, God? Uh, no, I'm not. Just come along. God, this is too heavy. The grief is too much. No, it's not. You'll be fine. I got you. So as God began to repair and restore that relationship... Uh, we got a call in February of this year, and Kaya's birth parents said, uh, after 10 years together, four children, three of whom they're parenting and one of whom we've adopted, we are going to get married. And guess who they asked to officiate the wedding? And guess who they asked to be the maid of honor? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, I look good. I look good, but I'm not that good. So my wife was the maid of honor, and my little girl was the flower girl. We walked down, or we walked down, we did not walk, we flew uh, to Florida, and we stood in a room where we were the only two Caucasian people, and I, it was amazing, because we've developed a relationship. I know their family. They know us. We, we are friends now, and, and, and really family in a lot of ways, and so the first thing I said as the officiant, I've never said this before, officiating a wedding, and I will never say it again, but I said, you may have been to a lot of weddings before, but I bet you've never been to one where the pastor who's officiating is the baby daddy for both the bride and the groom. This is a little, <laughs> a little strange, isn't it? Yeah, their laughter wasn't as uncomfortable as your laughter. They liked it. They liked it. And we talked about God's kingdom restoration project, and we talked about the ways in which God can pick up the pieces of our life, whether it's clinical depression, which I've experienced, whether it's heavy grief, which I've experienced, whether it's divorce, I haven't experienced that, whether it's addiction or loneliness or pain or all those things that we talked about on the screen, God can pick up the pieces of that life. God can pick up the pieces of everything. God, you can't use this. It's just broken. It's shattered. It's, it can't be repaired. And he goes, you want to bet? Why don't you look back 2,000 years ago at the down payment I made when I raised my son from the grave and beat hell and sin and death, and the rightful king inaugurated the rightful kingdom. Now come participate with me. God, you can't use these pieces of my broken life. There's no way. God, you can't. That's just dust, God. That's just dust. You remember, you were just dust one time. And God says, I can use that. I can pick it up. I can heal it. And he can with you too. And, 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 and. He invites you to participate with him. Listen, I don't want to give you a lot of examples here, but you know that there is someone in your life 
Something that you need to do, some phone call that you need to make, some person at the cubicle, three cubicles down from you at work, some student at school that's sitting by themselves in the lunchroom, some organization that you need to start, some neighbor that you need to visit, somewhere, something, someone needs to know that God's kingdom is on the move and the rightful king has inaugurated the rightful kingdom. And one day, check it, he's going to crack open the sky, he's going to step on the pages of history, and he's going to go, I am making all things new and it's going to be done but right now we have the privilege of having been entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation the message of the gospel that God is making all things new let's pray God thank you for the opportunity to talk about your good news today God would you call each and every one of us would you remind each and every one of us would you Impress upon our heart the ways in which we are invited to participate in making all things new, in redeeming and restoring and healing and bringing hope. God, thank you. We, can, we count it a privilege and an honor and a heavy weight of responsibility to having, or that, that we were entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation. Encourage us today. Make us brave. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen.